Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 8, Plays the Thing, The History and Future of Recess. If you ask the average elementary schooler what her favorite subject is in school, you probably won't be surprised if she answers recess. One of the few universals in America's highly variegated public school system is that students can find some rare, unstructured moments of free play and creativity during a few minutes set aside between instructional periods. In one of those ironic trends so typical of American education, research attesting to the positive health and even learning benefits of recess for children has grown at the same time as schools across the country are decreasing recess opportunities. Over the last 20 years, a fifth of American school districts reduced recess time, or even eliminated it entirely, and at this point, only eight of the 50 states have any requirements for elementary schools to have recess at all. And all of this was before the COVID-19 pandemic, with so many districts now running school remotely, and even those holding in-person classes now operating under restrictions for student proximity to one another. It sometimes looks as if the final nails are being driven into the coffin of free playtime in school. So even as we may be getting ready to write the obituary on recess, let's take a look at its history. How did it come to be? How did schools employ it? What does the research say about its effects on kids? And where might there be signs that recess, much like that unfortunate plague victim from Monty Python's quest for the Holy Grail, isn't quite dead yet? Recess was not part of the original DNA of schooling. Insofar as it's possible to say anything about the structure of American schools writ large in the early 19th century, a time when there was even less standardization among them than there is now, it is pretty safe to say that recess was just not a thing. Lessons progressed from the beginning to the conclusion of the school day, albeit usually with an hour or so break for students to go home and have lunch. This was the world into which a boy named Amos Bronson Alcott was born in Walcott, Connecticut. Yes, in a coincidence of Dr. Susie and proportions, Alcott was from Walcott. Alcott began school at age six in 1805, although, as is very much still the case now, children of affluent and highly educated parents, and Alcott was one such child, received substantial supplementation to their official education. As such, Alcott's mother taught him how to read, and by the time he was 13, his uncle was giving him college preparatory lessons. From a young age, though, Alcott was something of a nonconformist. He pushed back against both his formal and informal schooling, and by all accounts, self-educated his way through his later teens, in between earning some extra money working for a clockmaker in Plymouth, Massachusetts. At age 17, Alcott took and passed the exam to be a school teacher himself, largely for financial reasons, as his family had gotten themselves into no small amount of debt, and when that plan didn't pan out, a combination of difficulty in finding work and a realization that then, as of now, no one makes a heck of a lot of money by being a teacher, Alcott became a traveling salesman in Virginia. Apparently, he failed pretty miserably at that plan, and ironically, wound up needing to be bailed out of debt himself by his father. Alcott finally buckled down and secured a steady teaching job at a school in Cheshire, Connecticut, where he saw a lot of things about the school that he felt could be improved, and set about trying to improve them. Some of these things were physical. Alcott added backs to the benches on which students sat, and improved lighting and heating, and provided individual writing slates to each student, apparently all on his own dime. But most of his reforms were pedagogical. 
During his period of self-education, Alcott had stumbled upon the work of the radical Swiss educator Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi, who got his own episode of this podcast back in Season 1, Episode 11. In quickie version, Pestalozzi believed in what we now call student-centered education, and active learning through experimentation and interaction, as opposed to students being expected to learn from listening to lectures and doing road exercises. Alcott was such a fan that he even managed to get that school in Cheshire renamed after Pestalozzi. Word of these radical practices spread to nearby Massachusetts, where social reformer Samuel Joseph May, related to the Boston aristocracy of the Quincy's and the Hancocks, took an interest in him. Such an interest that he even managed to hook Alcott up with his sister, the activist and writer Abby May, who on her mother's side was descended from the infamous Salem witch trial judge Samuel Sewell. As I mentioned in this season's opening episode, you really can't talk about anyone in 18th or even 19th century Massachusetts education without getting back sooner or later to the Salem Witch Trials. May became a teacher in a new school that Alcott wound up running in Boston. The two eventually married, and the most famous of their four children was, of course, Louisa May Alcott, author of Little Women. They went on to hobnob with transcendentalist legends Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, and to create an ambitious and largely disastrous experimental utopian community called Fruitlands. But none of that is really relevant here, beyond the fact that it's all the context for Alcott's introduction of one particular radical experiment in schooling, that of recess. Alcott believed that student learning actually benefited from unstructured playtime, that, in fact, playtime was a kind of learning, a more organic and natural way of sense-making of the world through the kind of curiosity and experimentation that human beings, and especially children, don't need any direction in exercising. If we see something new that interests us, we poke around and try it on and see what it's like. The educational establishment of the time did not see recess the way Alcott did. In fact, the general consensus was that this was all a waste of time, if not an outright mockery of the educational mission of schooling. That recess not only survived, but made its way into the mainstream, is largely to the credit of a very powerful ally and disciple of Alcott's, one William Torrey Harris. Another Connecticut native, Harris actually made his career in St. Louis, where he became first a teacher and eventually school superintendent, marrying Susan Blow. Now, Blow is quite a legend herself in the history of American education. The daughter of a U.S. ambassador to Brazil who was raised with the best private education money could buy. She, like Alcott, fell in love with Pestalozzi's philosophies, and even more so with that of Pestalozzi's most famous pupil, Friedrich Froebel, who invented kindergarten. The first American kindergarten technically was started by Wisconsinite Margaret Schertz in 1856, although following Froebel's model, it only taught classes in German, and served mainly the children of the local German immigrant community. Elizabeth Peabody, profiled in Season 2, Episode 2, started the first English-language American kindergarten in Massachusetts in 1860, like most progressive schools of the era, was private and tuition-based. So it was Susan Blow in 1873 who opened America's first public kindergarten in St. Louis, after a year studying in New York with Froebel's own protege, Maria Krauss-Bolt. The Desperes School, run by Blow and two assistants, Mary Timberlake and Cynthia Dozier, enrolled and educated 42 students. I suppose calling it a public school might actually be a bit of a stretch. Mostly it was bankrolled by Blow herself, but any student could attend and no one had to pay, so I'm calling it a public school, even if its source of income wasn't from public taxation. Within three years, Blow's kindergarten expanded to 50 teachers and over a thousand students, and by 1883, every public school in St. Louis had a kindergarten. True to Froebel's model, 
these kids were learning, not through lectures or book lessons, but through play and social interaction with each other. It was the experience with his wife's schools that led Lowe's husband, William Torrey Harris, to attend a private lyceum run by Alcott, after which his belief in the efficacy of play-based learning only grew. In 1884, Harris delivered a paper before the Department of Superintendents of the National Education Association, basically saying that educators concerned about the loss of time on learning that recess represented and the, quote, lack of discipline, unquote, associated with free play should just chill the heck out. Recess, he said, was not going to turn kids into anarchic social deviants. The, quote, chief use of recess, unquote, he said, is the, quote, complete suspension of the tension of the willpower and the surrender to caprice for a brief interval, unquote. In other words, he said, the whole point of recess was that kids needed a little amuck time. He also argued that recess played a vital role in maintaining children's physical health. And as the U.S. economy moved farther and farther away from agriculture, Kids were no longer getting their daily exercise by working on the family farm. They needed to get it somewhere else. Harris was eventually appointed U.S. Commissioner of Education in 1889 and remained in that role through a record of four presidential administrations. Benjamin Harrison, Grover Cleveland, William McKinley, and Theodore Roosevelt, if you're curious. He used the bully pulpit of his role to push for the adoption of recess in schools nationwide and was largely successful. It did wind up becoming a staple in schools for the next century. Like everything else in American public education, the specific ways in which recess was implemented varied widely from town to town and from school to school, but generally was no less than between 30 and 60 minutes a day, sometimes divided into two or more separate periods. Recess tends to be longer in the early grades than in the later ones, and disappears entirely in most districts by middle school. It really actually wasn't until the year 2000 that any effort was made to track the prevalence and quantity of recess across American schools. That was the year that the Center for Disease Control's School Health Policies and Program Study began tracking recess and found that at least 82% of elementary schools included at least 15 minutes of recess per day. Although apparently, as of 2014 anyway, only 20% of school districts mandated daily recess and 60% of districts had no official policy governing recess whatsoever. It just sort of happened somehow, which I suppose could be seen as weirdly in keeping with Harris, Blows, and Alcott's idea of recess as a flexible, unstructured time. Now, it is incumbent upon me to mention that Harris is not a morally unproblematic figure in the history of U.S. education. The other life's mission that he was famous for, besides promoting recess, was promoting the mandatory re-education of Native Americans. Harris was a huge proponent of the forced removal of indigenous children from their families for up to 10 years of civilizing in the schools. Harris wrote at one point, quote, We owe it to ourselves and to the enlightened public opinion of the world to save the Indian and not destroy him. We cannot save him and his patriarchal or tribal institution both together. To save him, we must take him up into our form of civilization. We must approach him in the missionary spirit, and we must supplement missionary action by the aid of the civil arm of the state. We must establish compulsory education for the good of the lower race. End quote. So, yeah. And Harris was not the only somewhat problematic supporter that recess acquired. The other famous and infamous recess booster in American history was Joseph Lee, Yet another Boston aristocrat, founder of the Massachusetts Civil League, one-time president of the National Recreation Association, and major underwriter of the creation of Harvard University's School of Education. 
It is no exaggeration to say that Lee is basically the reason that schools have playgrounds. He was concerned that the urban poor kids in Boston had no real place to play in the streets and tended to get arrested for delinquency when they tried. Conscious of the fact that he had grown up with the luxury of plenty of playtime himself, Lee set it as his life's mission to create and install public playgrounds for general use throughout the city. Like Alcott, Blow, Froebel, and Pestalozzi before him, Lee recognized that play wasn't just frivolous. He once wrote, quote, It is the supreme seriousness of play that gives it its educational importance. Play seen from the inside as the child sees it is the most serious thing in life. Play builds the child. Play is thus the essential part of education. End quote. Lee used his money and influence to acquire vacant lots and renovate them with sandboxes, large pipes, and other staples of modern playground equipment. By the end of his life, he had helped populate not only Boston, but also Chicago with public playgrounds, many of which wound up becoming attached to schools. And by the middle of the 20th century, school playgrounds were simply a norm, and the logical locus of where recess should and did take place. Now, you may recall that I said that Lee, like Harris, was also a highly problematic figure. Well, in addition to all of those other grand organizations he presided over, he was also highly active in something called the Immigration Restriction League, which was exactly what it sounded like. Lee was a promoter of the early 20th century's own version of the America First build-a-wall-to-keep-out-the-non-white-people mentality. He was something of an equal-opportunity xenophobe, I guess, frequently railing against Italians, Catholics, Italian Catholics, and Jews, worried that, quote, Europe might soon be drained of Jew, to its benefit, no doubt, but not to ours, unquote, and that America was in danger of becoming a, quote, Dago nation, unquote. Lee was good buddies with Woodrow Wilson's arch-foe, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, and worked with him to create unfair tests and fees to discourage immigration. Playgrounds were great, I guess, so long as they remained for the exclusive use of white Protestant Americans. It is a testimony to the moral complexity, or perhaps just moral hypocrisy, of America that figures who were so progressive in their advocacy for humane and generative education for some children should also harbor such venomous feelings towards other children from groups that they deemed inferior. But that's how it went. And that's how, from its origins, both progressive and racist, Recess rose to become an inextricable part of American elementary schooling. Until, well, it wasn't. If you haven't guessed, it was in 2001, after the passage of the No Child Left Behind Act, that recess, after over a century of ubiquity, ended up in the crosshairs for elimination in schools across the nation, even as a counter-movement arose of research shouting its benefits into the largely indifferent winds of education policy. I'm never sure if any given episode is the very first one a listener will hear, so if you haven't heard me explain No Child Left Behind a few zillion times already, here's my shortest explanation yet. It was an attempt to ensure some degree of equity across the 13,000-some-odd different and largely self-governed school systems around the country that were, until that point, all teaching whatever the heck their locally elected school boards decided they should be teaching. No Child Left Behind, or NCLB, made states establish learning standards that all schools needed to get their students to meet in order to prove that their students were learning, or else face financial penalties, mass firings, and state takeovers. The intentions of NCLB were great, and the execution was kind of a nightmare, because the law never really addressed the massive financial and structural inequities between districts, which were still left with nothing but their own local property taxes with which to somehow meet these tough new achievement standards. Without the ability to magically add more money, 
money that could hire more qualified teachers or reduce class sizes or support learners with special needs or provide better facilities and equipment, many schools turned to the one thing they did have control over, their schedules. Since the new state tests were mainly measuring achievement in math and English, the pressure was there to devote every available moment to instruction in those subjects, or sometimes just instruction in test prep techniques. But regardless, that time had to come at the expense of other subjects, usually electives like art and music, and yes, especially at the expense of recess. Because there was no state test in art or music or recess that kids needed to pass or else the school would be shut down. So in one school after another across the United States, recess was reduced or even eliminated. As just a handful of examples, the Bain School of Arts and Language in Kenosha, Wisconsin, eliminated recess except when explicitly used for educational purposes in the subjects being tested, which of course meant an end to unstructured play. Clark County School District in Nevada did the same. Even with a 15-minute recess, said their superintendent, you spend five minutes getting students to the playground and another five getting back and five more getting them to be calmed down and ready to learn in the classroom, you end up blowing 30 minutes of potential instructional time to gain the limited benefits of having recess. It's become a luxury we can't afford. End quote. Gadsden City, Alabama schools were so desperate to cram in more instructional time that they not only eliminated recess, but also naps for kindergartners. I'm providing anecdotes here because, once again, comprehensive statistics are thin on the ground. Going back to the CDC's School Health Policies and Program study, data showed a drop from the year 2000 through 2014 of 60% in recess time during that period. Although I have to point out that this specific statistic refers to decrease in after-lunch recess, so it is entirely possible that at least some of that decrease could just represent a shift of recess time to before lunch something many schools have done because of some pretty persuasive research indicating that it increases meal consumption and improves attention in the classes that follow lunch. From 2006 to 2014 alone, schools providing any recess at all dropped 14%. Like so much else in public education, these reductions were not equitable across class and racial lines. As of 2006, anyway, urban schools were reporting the lowest average minutes per day of recess, 24 minutes in first grade and 21 minutes in sixth grade while their suburban and rural counterparts were 31 minutes in first grade and 24 minutes in sixth grade. That difference of a couple of minutes might not sound like much, but remember, this is multiplied by every day throughout an entire year. That's hours and hours of difference in terms of time spent in unstructured play. The lowest minutes per day of recess, 21 minutes in first grade and 17 minutes in sixth grade, occurred in schools where 75% or more of the students were eligible for free or reduced price lunch which is no coincidence at all, since these were also the schools with the lowest student test scores, under the most pressure to get their kids' test performance up to state standards by any means possible. And, yes, the schools with the highest percentages of black and brown students. But who cares, right? I mean, so what if kids lose that playtime? There are a lot of tests to study for. As of 2015, American students were taking an average of 112 mandated standardized tests between pre-kindergarten and 12th grade. And even beyond the practical imperatives of passing those tests, isn't it a good thing if students have more time to learn their academic subjects? Well, the late 1990s through the mid-2010s brought a bonanza of studies about recess. From a small study of 43 fourth graders in 1998 to a fairly large study of 11,008 and nine-year-olds in 2009, research kept reporting that recess correlated with better focus and behavior in the classroom. 
a 2010 report by the CDC found in its survey of the research that, quote, there is substantial evidence that physical activity can help improve academic achievement, including grades and standardized test scores, unquote. Ironically, the very goal that recess had been curtailed and even eliminated to try and achieve. In 2013, the American Academy of Pediatrics issued a policy statement entitled The Crucial Role of Recess in School, which, as you may have guessed, argues for the crucial role of recess in schools as, quote, a necessary break in the day for optimizing a child's social, emotional, physical, and cognitive development, unquote. They recommend 60 minutes per day, or over three times the amount that average students actually get in practice. Bolstered by all of this, parents and community members began demanding a restoration of recess, and they got a big break when the 2015 Every Student Succeeds Act, or ESSA, relaxed some of No Child Left Behind strict guidelines and granted states and districts a little more flexibility in meeting them. In 2016, two mothers in Orlando, Florida, spearheaded a three-year effort that successfully reinstituted recess in their local schools. In fact, they got the Florida legislature to enact a statewide recess mandate of at least 20 minutes a day, and Rhode Island enacted a similar law later that year. Mandatory recess bills were proposed in Georgia and Arizona, but failed to pass. And a mandatory recess bill that passed in New Jersey was subsequently vetoed by then-Governor Chris Christie on the grounds that it was, in his judgment, stupid. I'll give you the entire quotation here. Quote, Part of my job as governor is to veto the stupid bills. This was a stupid bill, and I vetoed it. Unquote. Christie later told Fox News that the bill was an example of, quote, crazy government run amok. Unquote. Even without crazy government threatening to take away Americans' God-given rights not to have recess in schools, many districts have increased physical education time in general in response to alarming statistics about American children's obesity and ill health, including a 2017 CDC report that one in every three children in the United States is obese. In practice, though, this has led to more time for physical education classes, which is by no means a bad thing, but which is also by no means Alcott and Pestalozzi's idea of recess, which is all about non-structured playtime. In 2001, the Council on Physical Education for Children and the National Association for Sport and Physical Education issued a joint recommendation that physical education classes not become a replacement for the unstructured playtime of recess, that there is something to the whole idea of unstructured play that is, in itself, a special kind of healthful. But just when the tides seemed to be turning in recess's favor, the COVID-19 pandemic hit. If schools aren't even in physical session, and kids are restricted to remote learning in their homes, recess is clearly not in the offering. And even as more and more schools reopen their doors, the realities of social distancing really restrict the kinds of play-based recess experiences that are possible. I'll never forget a photo I saw of one school's children forced to stay inside individually drawn chalk circles in the schoolyard pavement, each six feet apart. While hopefully this state of affairs is a temporary one, the fact that remote learning is sure to stick around after the pandemic in some form or other may mean that students will spend more time stuck behind a screen and less time engaging in real-world play-based learning with their peers, which is really tragic in so many ways, not the least of which is that there is a growing body of research in international circles that says unstructured playtime helps students cope with and recover from trauma. And trauma is something that the pandemic has given to millions of children across the country. So often, school is constructed in our minds as the antithesis of play. 
the structuring and organization of learning as opposed to the organic kind of learning that happens in the so-called natural world. But educators like Pestalozzi and Froebel and Alcott and May and Blow and Harris all thought that this division didn't have to be the case. They looked at schools and envisioned them as facilitators of, not opponents of, free and unstructured play. And that's an idea that I really think deserves to be kept alive, even if for only 15 minutes every day. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great, then you're in for a treat. Today's fun fact about education. As long as we're talking about recess, in Finland, which is pretty much Shangri-La in terms of progressive education, first graders spend only four and a half hours a day in school, and an amazing one and a half hours of that time is spent on recess or unstructured outdoor play. None of that seems to stop Finland from routinely leading the world in educational outcomes. Uh, Just saying. Bye now.